Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The New Jersey Parole Board was looking at a model prisoner. Richard Biegenwald was no longer the 18-year-old punk who'd gunned down a shopkeeper in what looked to be a botched robbery. He was 35 now and had behaved well behind bars. And really, when you look at the troubled childhood he had had, was it any wonder he had taken some missteps? From very early on, he showed some personality disorder issues. That's John E. O'Rourke, a New Jersey state trooper turned true crime historian. He had a fascination with death. He tried to set his house on fire, tried to set himself on fire. He started uh, experimenting with killing animals very early on. And some of the supposed treatment he endured is unimaginable. They did electric uh, shock treatment. At age nine, even the woman married to Beganwald's victim wanted him to someday get a second chance. And so he did. In 1975, convicted killer Richard Beganwald was released from prison, having served 17 years of what could have been a life sentence. He was free to start his life anew, to make something of himself and become a valuable member of society. Instead, he became a serial killer whose total body count we may never know. Richard Fran Beganwald was born August 24, 1940, to parents Albert and Sally Beganwald, who lived on Staten Island in New York. Albert wasn't an ideal father, to say the least. He had been in a train accident when he was 11 that led to the amputation of his right leg. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was that he was a drunk, and a mean one at that. According to court records, he had absolutely no interest in the family. He would explode in outbursts of what his wife called rage attacks. According to the Asbury Park Press, he left his wife and child at least 15 times, usually returning within a day or two. His wife, Sally, did show interest in her family. She was maybe on the stern side, but this could be a chicken or the egg situation because her little boy, her only son, seemed to be born a hellion. At five years old, he tried to set fire to the family's house. He started cutting himself soon after that. I can only imagine I might get a bit rigid with rules if my kiddo did that kind of stuff. Sally at least cared enough to try to get her son help. After the fire-starting incident, Richard was committed to the Children's Psychiatric Center in Rockland County. The idea was that a mental institution might be better suited to deal with his outbursts and destructive behavior, though we can look back with hindsight and note that there's a reason we as a society aren't so quick to institutionalize children anymore. But this was more than 70 years ago. He was originally diagnosed as a schizophrenic, not necessarily sure that, although I'm not a doctor, with my research, 
if that's a good way to classify him. He definitely had antisocial disorder. O'Rourke knows this case as well as anyone because he spent years studying Biegenwald and for good reason. My book uh, is entitled The Jersey Shore Throat Killer, Richard Biegenwald, and it was published by the History Press. This case, while huge in New Jersey, didn't make headlines all over the country to the same degree as we've seen with other serial killers. This one has been truly lost to time. Anyway, Sally's attempts to set young Richard straight failed miserably. Well before his voice cracked, he was reportedly drinking and gambling. A psychiatrist conducted an inkblot test on him and found he, quote, openly expressed hostility toward his mother, end quote. He reportedly told an examiner that he didn't care if he lived or died. In fact, he said, if I had a thousand bucks, I'd pay my mother off to buy my freedom. He said, quote, I could jump out of that window and then it would all be over, end quote. He wasn't yet 10. The electroshock therapy wasn't a one-off. He got 20 treatments, according to the Asbury Park Press. The idea behind it is that the body is zapped by electric currents that trigger a brief seizure, causing changes in brain chemistry. To the uninitiated, it can sound barbaric, and while it's still used in some form today and can apparently be helpful in certain conditions, it's fair to say it was pretty barbaric in the 1940s and 50s. Biegenwald would later describe enduring two-hour wet sheet treatments as well. During those, he was wrapped so tightly from the neck down in wet sheets that he couldn't move. He said he would urinate on himself just to keep warm. Whether his behavior calmed after that because of the treatments or out of fear of more treatments is tough to say. But examiners did say they noticed a difference. He improved enough that he was allowed to leave the hospital. He was placed instead in a training school for boys where he quickly backslid. He was accused of stealing stuff and inciting others to escape. At age 11, he was back at his mother's home, and that's when he tried to set himself on fire. Eventually, he realized that when he misbehaved at the training school, he got in trouble. And getting in trouble meant he wasn't getting out. So he started to comply, and he realized if I comply and I get along and I put on this facade, if you will, of good behavior, they'll let me out, and they did. Richard entered the public school system to attend high school, but that was short-lived. While he was, by all accounts, an intelligent kid, he was a terrible student and soon dropped out. Then, in 1958, he was convicted of car theft in Nashville. That landed him in a federal reformatory for several months. A few weeks after he was released, Biegenwald buddied up with another teenager, James Sparnroft, and the two started hatching a plan that would make Richard's exploits to date seem piddly. The idea, as he explained it to Sparnroft, was that they would get a gun and rob a store for some money. Sparnroft managed to secure a shotgun, which the two sawed off. On December 18, 1958, so just a week before Christmas, the two stole a car and drove to Bayonne, a city in New Jersey on a peninsula located between Newark Bay to the west, the Kilvan Cull to the south, and the Newark Bay to the east. In retrospect, it seems an odd target because it's tough to flee a peninsula, but apparently that wasn't a deterrent. 
The teens pulled up to a grocery store that was readying to close for the night. Biegenwald pulled a raincoat on that Sparnroft had helped him modify. Uh, raincoat, they cut a slice in the, in the pocket of raincoat so they can get a sawed-off shotgun uh, in there. So they were, they were preparing for something. The store owner was a 47-year-old father of four named Steven Sladowski. He hadn't been in the grocery business long. His day job, in fact, was working as a lawyer, both in business for himself and for the city. He was best known for his 15 years as a city attorney. He was a, a prominent figure within uh, the city of Bayonne. Age 50 was inching ever closer, though, and Sladowski and his wife were planning to pivot in retirement. So he opened up this bodega, which is which was only a few blocks from his house, in that vein of preparation for you know retiring. And sadly, that was identified by, by Richard Biegenwald as um, the place that he was going to commit this atrocious act. Biegenwald walked inside the store and pulled his shotgun. Sladowski resisted. That argument didn't last long. It was short. That's when Biegenwald shot him uh, point blank with the shotgun. Sladowski slumped to the floor, mortally wounded. Biegenwald didn't bother to check the register or grab any belongings from the man he had shot. Instead, he ran outside And as he climbed into the stolen car where Sparnroft was waiting for him, he fired another blast through the storefront window. Let's get out of here, he screamed. The second extraneous shotgun blast is what caught the attention of a few nearby teens who, lucky for them, Biegenwald hadn't noticed were watching. Those teens were able to provide police a vehicle description. Describing the assailant wasn't so easy, though. Biegenwald had a unique look, red hair and blue eyes, but he had wisely camouflaged himself a bit before walking into the grocery store. He darkened his hair, darkened his, his complexion, wore a hat, wore a, a raincoat. So he did a pretty good job of trying to disguise himself. Police quickly found the getaway car abandoned on a side street, but the two assailants the witnesses had described were nowhere to be found. They also couldn't figure out why someone would have targeted the well-liked family man. A 1958 Wire story said that police, quote, explored the possibility that it occurred either during a holdup or as revenge for something Slidowski had done in the line of duty. They began a systematic search of his files to determine whether anyone could have held a grudge against him, end quote. The next day, Beganwald and Sparnroff decided they should leave town. They hit the turnpike and they went down, uh, I believe it was Maryland. He's right, it was Maryland. And they get stopped by a local police officer. Now, the police officer isn't looking for anyone. There were no bolos or be-on-the-lookout alerts for Beganwald and his buddy. This cop, at most, had a gut feeling that these two were maybe up to something. But the car they were in this time had also been stolen So instead of risking this officer looking up the car and figuring that out, Beaconwald shot him in the face. Amazingly, the wound was superficial, so after Beaconwald and Sparnroff fled, the injured policeman was able to get help and provide a description of both the car and the men inside of it. No one had been looking for Beaconwald before, but now he was on the radars of a good chunk of the East Coast. He didn't get far before a state trooper spotted the men. Sparnroft later described the encounter as... A gunfight at the OK Corral. He he said they were both, well, he crazy. 
that the you know, Peggy Moore was crazy, and so was the state trooper, uh, who, who basically, you know, I guess was fearless in, you know, in, the, in the face of, of the shooting. The trooper was shot in the leg. Biegenwald was shot in the face. When he and Sparnroft were arrested, it was clear that the two were different types of criminals. Sparnroft, wearing khakis and a tie, seemed to, you know, care about what had happened. He confessed straight away, saying he thought he had signed up for a robbery, not a murder. Biegenwald, meanwhile, was dead-eyed, aloof. No one could imagine that behind that uncaring demeanor was a rage that would build for 17 years. A rage just waiting to be unleashed. The newspapers paid no attention when Richard Biegenwald was released from prison for the murder of Stephen Slidowski. And in fact, Biegenwald wasn't mentioned at all for 20 years after that trial, nor was the late lawyer. When Slidowski's name did appear in newspapers, it was always in reference to something one of his family members had going on, like when his son, Robert Slidowski, got engaged in 1972, and when he tied the knot the next year. So you might be wondering, once released from prison, does a guy like Biegenwald keep his nose clean for a while? No, he does not. In 1977, he picked up a hitchhiker, a young woman with dark hair and eyes, and accosted her. Luckily, her spidey senses had already been tingling, so she'd been poised to bolt by the time he attacked, which helped her escape, rattled, but physically okay. Before that, Biegenwald had once again not been a wanted man, but the woman he attacked got a good look at him. Giving the authorities a really good physical description of Richard Biegenwald. As a result of that, he, he becomes wanted and he gets arrested in New York City. The charge he faced was attempted rape, though in hindsight, it's fair to assume that whatever move he had made to accost this woman wasn't to rape her. It was probably to kill her. There's never really been a tie of a sexual assault to any victims of his killings, although I I definitely think there's a, a sexual component to it. More on that later. As the case got underway, something strange happened. There was a lawyer well known in New Jersey for representing known mobsters. His name was Louis Diamond. Lou Diamond got a call from an unnamed mob boss asking him to represent Biegenwald, saying that the guy was trustworthy. So Diamond met with Biegenwald in jail, and the two got acquainted. Diamond found Biegenwald to be incredibly smart, especially for a high school dropout who had spent most of his life in some kind of custody. They discussed that police planned to have him stand in a lineup the next morning to see if his alleged victim would identify him as her assailant. After their get-to-know-you meeting, Diamond stood up to leave, and just as the cell door was closing, he made a comment. He says, that's a very interesting hair color you have. This was no innocent comment. It was a thinly-veiled directive. Biegenwald got the hint and, that night, shaved his head of his distinctive red hair. He was not picked out of the lineup. Though Biegenwald escaped charges in that case, he got himself into enough trouble three years later that he was sent back to prison for violating his parole. After his release in 1981, he started working odd jobs and hooked up with a self-described hitman named Darren Fitzgerald, who ultimately would play a supporting role in his crimes. 
Around this time, Beganwald also got married to a young woman about 20 years old named Diane. If that marriage was meant to have a grounding effect, it didn't. In fact, Diane worked at a hospital from which she stole drugs to share with her husband. Soon, Beganwald and his wife recruited a third woman named Teresa Smith to live with them. Teresa and Beganwald had a sexual relationship, and as she later told police, he started grooming her to become a killer, just like he was. Here's Teresa talking with a lawyer about her drug use while she lived with Beganwald in 1982. How often were you using drugs then? Every day? Yes. And what drugs were you using every day? I was using speed then. Speed? Yeah. Beganwald and his hitman friend Fitzgerald provided the drugs, which helped Beganwald keep the women in his life pliable. It also probably helped keep them in line that he had a shit ton of guns. I think you mentioned a machine gun, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. You fired that too, didn't you? Yes. Where'd you fire that? In New Jersey. And that was Fitzgerald's weapon, right? Yes. But he let you fire it, right? It was Rich's idea. But Fitzgerald let you fire his weapon, is that correct? Yes. Now, to outsiders paying attention, Beaconwald's life at this point might have looked kinky but not necessarily criminal. He lived with his wife and girlfriend in a house that had been divided into apartments. His buddy Fitzgerald lived in the same house, but in a separate unit. Teresa had gotten an intimate look at everything, and so she knew that things were even weirder than they might have seemed on the surface. For example, Beganwald's unit didn't have direct access to the house's basement, while Fitzgerald's did. So Beaconwald cut a hole in his floor and built a staircase so that he could go down in the basement and stash guns and drugs in a space he shared with Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald also had a secret room in his side of the house. Did you describe that secret hiding place? It was just uh, like a hole in the wall behind. And what was the purpose of that hiding, if you know? That's where he used to grow pot. What? That's where he used to grow marijuana. All of this might have stayed secret if Beganwald hadn't made the ill-fated decision to try to recruit Teresa to the dark side. How it came to light is this. In August of 1982, a young woman named Anna Olesowicz was out on the town with a friend. Both women were 18, and it was a last hurrah as the summer ended and college classes were set to begin. To celebrate, the two had basically been bar hopping in Ocean Township, New Jersey. After a while, Anna's feet started to hurt, so she sat on a bench on the boardwalk and gave her shoes to her friend, who had a bag on her. Then the friend, whose uncle lived nearby, had to use the bathroom. She didn't want to use a public restroom, so she decided to walk to her uncle's house and use it there. If that sounds a little sketchy, police thought so too. But it turned out that this friend was actually bulimic and hiding it, which was her real reason for wanting a private restroom. Anyway, the friend walked to her uncle's, and when she came back, Anna was gone. As you hear with a lot of similar-sounding scenarios, the friend didn't panic, but rather assumed that Anna had gone to another bar after all. Or maybe she'd headed to that same uncle's house, and they just happened to miss each other walking past. When Anna still didn't turn up the next morning, the friend got scared and alerted police. Anna's story is especially heartbreaking because of her father. He was a widower who had raised his only child alone from age nine on. He doted on his daughter. 
When she disappeared, he refused to give up hope that she'd turn up safely. When she was finally found, she was five months decomposed. No one had any reason to tie Beganwald to the case. No one, that is, except Teresa Smith. Turned out, the night that Anna disappeared, Beganwald had dispatched his protege, Teresa, to kill a co-worker of hers named Betsy. Teresa and Betsy hung out that night, with Teresa planning the whole time to kill her friend. She couldn't muster the, it's not courage, it's evil, so she couldn't muster the evil to kill someone, so she went back home. Beganwald was furious that she had failed her mission. He stormed out of the apartment. When he came back, he wasn't alone. Sometime that evening when you got up and went to the kitchen, you looked outside and saw the valley, right? Yes. Your car. Yes. I can't quite make out the type of car he's saying here, but the gist is, Teresa had gone to bed, then woke up in the middle of the night and spotted Beganwald in her car with the passenger. And you looked in the car and you saw somebody there, but you couldn't determine the, the sex, whether it was a male or a female, right? Yes. The person was alive, though, right? I imagine. It was moving, right? Person was in the it was car. just sitting up. <laughs> Teresa didn't think much of this and went back to bed. Soon, Beganwald was in a room telling her he had something he wanted her to do. But Teresa was too strung out on, on pills to, to get up and, and to do it. The next morning, Teresa went to work, and when she returned that evening, Beganwald said he wanted to show her something. He took her into the garage and lifted up a discarded mattress to reveal a woman's body. You were supposed to kill someone last night, he said. First Betsy, and then this woman I brought home for you. But when you wouldn't get out of bed, I had to do it myself. Then he insisted that Teresa touch the corpse. And uh, you touched it? Yes, I did. What was your reaction to touching that body? How did I feel? Yeah. Sick. Sick? Did you throw up or anything? No. Did you run away? No. Not immediately, anyway. Teresa kept her cool, but apparently had an internal epiphany. She moved out of the apartment soon after this, and you might wonder why he let this woman live when she could pin a murder on him. But O'Rourke thinks that Beganwald was confident she would be too scared to talk. You know, when people get mad at you and they say, I'm going to kill you, most people don't take that as as legit. When Beganwald said, I'm going to kill you, people realized he's going to kill you. So there's that fear factor there that if you open up your mouth, you're going to get killed. And at first, Teresa did keep quiet. She moved out. She got a new boyfriend. They went on a nice vacation. And when she came back, Anna's body had finally been discovered behind a fast food restaurant. It's hard to say whether it was her conscience that forced her to come forward or simply the realization that she herself, attractive with dark hair and dark eyes, looked a lot like Anna did. And in fact, several women similar in appearance had recently disappeared from the area too. And being finally at least disconnected from the extent of drug use that she was doing, she had more of a clarity of thought and she could realize, you know what, I look just like those people. Maybe, Maybe that was his intention, so maybe that still could be his intention. Teresa first told her new boyfriend what she had seen. He later testified that the two had been at a pizza parlor when she told him that her former lover had shown her a murdered body. He said he didn't know how to respond. What do you say? Um, I I didn't say hardly anything. I mean, it's not like uh, a normal conversation. I didn't need anything. (laughs) You believe it? 
It was very hard to believe. He didn't believe her at first, but then she kept talking about it. Almost constantly after that. After a few weeks, he came to believe the story, and he'd eventually encouraged Teresa to go to the police, though not immediately. He was asked why he didn't alert police right away about what he had learned. It's a difficult situation. I've seen, you know, whether it's in movies or in newspapers, so many times when the police are told, and knowing me not believing it, I thought, well, if they don't believe it right away, we're in trouble. Or if they just questioned him and that was it. Once Teresa stepped forward, police did take her seriously. She described Anna's appearance and the clothes she'd been wearing and the gunshots visible in her head. All of that gave police probable cause to search the house in which Beganwald and Fitzgerald lived. Beganwald was arrested pretty quickly, but his buddy Fitzgerald holed up in that hiding spot in the wall. He stayed there for more than an hour, but once he realized police weren't leaving until he came out, he surrendered. And then he flipped giving police everything they needed to know about Anna Olesowicz and more. It turned out Darren Fitzgerald wasn't some random guy Beaconwald happened to befriend after prison. He had once been a cellmate of Beaconwald's, according to a 1983 story in Newsday. Fitzgerald had been in and out of prison all of his adult life. The first mention in any newspaper I found of him was in 1955 in California, when he was arrested at age 20 for stealing a car. In 1966, he was accused of robbing a business and then robbing and kidnapping a police sergeant, a 16-year-old kid, and a 63-year-old man in Camden. Fitzgerald eventually pleaded guilty to the charges. Sometime during that prison stint, he crossed paths with Beganwald, and the men later reunited on the outside. They quickly became partners in crime. What all they did together remains a mystery. O'Rourke is convinced it had something to do with organized crime, which is supported by the fact that the defense lawyer Lou Diamond told O'Rourke he had gotten a call from a mob boss to defend Beganwald on that 1977 attempted rape charge. And I find that interesting because at that point, Beganwald had only been out of prison for two years and yet had enough of a reputation with a mob to be considered a trustworthy guy. It made me wonder if Beganwald hadn't picked his first victim, Stephen Sladowski, the assistant city attorney, at random after all. Maybe he'd been assigned him. Maybe it had been a hit. I floated this idea to O'Rourke. I agree with you. Those connections seem to be a little deep-rooted. So I do think that he he had some connections. He was only 18, so it was early on. But whatever connections he had, uh, he certainly didn't burn any bridges. Maybe that was a hit uh, for someone else. Fitzgerald, who, again, was a self-described hitman, seemed to have his own criminal enterprise dealings, sometimes alongside Beganwald, but not always. Anna's murder was one Beganwald did solo because, every so often, he would get moody and unpredictable. Teresa likened it to PMS, although maybe it's more like his father's rage attacks. Either way, during these spells, Teresa said, he'd always disappear. He'd be gone for a night or two, sometimes a little longer. And when he came back, he'd seem calmer. Killing someone at random was apparently the remedy for whatever ailed him. That's where I kind of suspect that there was some type of a sexual satisfaction he, he, he got from that. It was like almost him, if you will, forgive the vulgarity here, but him getting off. 
As you can tell, this urge to kill didn't come just the one time to be satiated by the death of Anna Lesowicz. There were others that investigators had no idea might be linked to each other until Biegenwald's associates started talking. No one considers this a complete list of his victims, but these are the ones we know about. In June of 1978, a 57-year-old convict turned police informant named John Patron met up with Beaconwald to go target practice shooting at tin cans at an abandoned airport in Flemington, New Jersey. Monmouth County Prosecutor Alexander Lair told the New York Times in 1983 that Patron at one point went and reset the cans for another round of shooting. When he came back, Beaconwald put a gun to his head. Patron thought he was kidding. Then Beaconwald pulled the trigger. After firing several bullets into Patron's head, He stuffed the man's body in a surplus police car he had bought at an auction and drove it to a desolate spot where he buried it. The informant, who isn't ID'd in the story but is almost certainly Fitzgerald, led police to the spot and sure enough, there was a skeleton there. Though part of the jaw was missing, enough remained for authorities to compare dental records. Three years later, Biegenwald shot and dismembered a 17-year-old girl whom he'd kidnapped on Halloween night. Maria Chiella had been walking along Route 88 when she was picked up by Biegenwald, who soon shot her multiple times in the head. Investigators found her remains buried on property in Staten Island, where Biegenwald's mother still lived at the time. They found another body there, too. 18-year-old Deborah Osborne disappeared in April 1982. We're comfortable she's one of Biegenwald's victims because she was buried on top of Maria in the same hole. She had been stabbed to death. Anna's death came next on August 28, 1982, just a few days after Biegenwald turned 42. Because her case was the first one tied to Biegenwald, it got the most media attention. Good evening, I'm Bob Hartman for TV 34 News Brief. The Richard Biegenwald murder trial continued today in Freehold, New Jersey. Beganwall is accused of murdering Anna Olesowitz of Camden, New Jersey, back in August of 1982. It's clear Beganwald was feeling pretty untouchable by the time he killed Anna. He took a black and gold ring from her hand and gave it to Teresa as a gift. Teresa, in turn, gave it to Diane, Beganwald's wife, who still had it in her jewelry box when the cops searched. It was like Beganwald was daring cops to nail him. He had told Fitzgerald about the murder, too. He told me that uh, he had a problem. The problem he found out that the body of Miss Alessowitz was in the garage. Did you view the body? Yes, I did. This is Fitzgerald testifying at trial. I observed the body of what appeared to be a female. It's lying down on the right side of the garage on a piece of rug. I would say it appeared to be a young female. Approximately 100, maybe 120 pounds, something like that. I couldn't really make it out because she was uh, covered to the almost the waist area with plastic bag. Fitzgerald didn't ask what had happened. Concerned more about the state of his garage than the dead woman inside of it, he agreed he would later help dispose of the body. Then he ate breakfast and went back to bed. If you're curious what Beganwald's defense was in this trial, Lou Diamond, his lawyer, tried to pin the murder on Fitzgerald. It didn't work. Well, with anyone but maybe Beganwald's mom, Sally. Soon after her son's arrest, she told reporters that she didn't know if her son was guilty, 
but whatever anger she felt was directed toward Fitzgerald. Quote, I feel very bad toward him, she said. He had Thanksgiving dinner here and Christmas dinner. She noted that her daughter-in-law, Diane, was four months pregnant at the time of his arrest. She said, quote, under the circumstances, I'm not excited like a grandmother should be, end quote. Diane Beganwald gave birth to a baby girl in August 1983. But back to the victims. After Anna, a 17-year-old named Virginia Clayton disappeared. Unlike the others, she wasn't missing for long. Three days after she vanished, her body, covered in stab wounds, was found in a wildlife preserve close to the spot John Patron had been buried. Clayton is usually included in lists of Beganwald's victims, though in truth, this is the most tentative on the list. A definite link's never been proven. Next came William Ward, who, like Patron, had a criminal record. Ward dealt drugs and had previously escaped from prison. He apparently tapped Beganwald and Fitzgerald as musclemen to protect him as he sold drugs. In the fall of 1982, he supposedly hired the men to kill someone for him, but Ward failed to put up the front money for the hit. He was shot five times in the head. Beganwald's last known victim was Betsy Bacon, another 17-year-old, and not the same Betsy that Teresa Smith had aimed to kill. Betsy Bacon left home November 20th, 1982, telling her mom she was running to the store for cigarettes. She never came home. Her body was later found in a shallow grave in Tinton Falls. Beganwald's case wound through court at an agonizingly slow pace. Because of technicalities, death penalty convictions against him for Anna's death were twice overturned. And while the third trial still ended with a guilty verdict, a lone holdout on the jury ensured that Beganwald was sentenced to life rather than death. Suzanne Bacon, mother of Betsy Bacon, was heartbroken over the sentencing. She said she had never been in favor of the death penalty until he entered her life, and she was livid that he escaped the death he had condemned at least eight others to face. And when I say at least, I'm not being dramatic, because here's something the jurors didn't know when they cast their votes. Assistant Prosecutor James Fagan said that Beganwald asked for a plea deal. James Fagan says that he was presented with a plea bargaining of, of 75 bodies, take the death penalty off the table, and they would come forward with these 75 bodies. Defense lawyer Lou Diamond later remembered the tally being somewhere closer to 25 rather than 75. But the bottom line is, Beaconwald likely killed far more than the eight we know about. Because Beaconwald seemed to like reusing disposal sites, O'Rourke suspects there's one or two locations where there's mass bodies buried. If you hop onto missing persons websites, you can find quite a few young, dark-haired, dark-eyed women missing from New Jersey between, say, 1977 and 1983. Some believe that Beganwald was working for a criminal enterprise in which he was killing innocent people and then selling their organs on the black market. His defense attorney was pretty sure that he was involved in some type of activity like that. Returning to prison was something of a homecoming for Richard Beganwald. After all, he had spent much of his life in some form of confinement. It's the only place where he seemed capable of controlling his homicidal urges. 
The so-called Jersey Shore thrill killer lived his remaining 25 years behind bars, dying in 2008 of respiratory and kidney failure. Decades earlier, some mob boss had supposedly told Beganwald's lawyer that the guy would never talk, that he'd take his secrets to the grave. And that's apparently exactly what he did. research this story, I read John E. O'Rourke's book, The Jersey Shore Thrill Killer, Richard Biegenwald. Huge thanks to O'Rourke for chatting with me about the case. I also watched available trial snippets and read contemporary news coverage about this surprisingly undercovered tale. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod.com. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.